Now we're going to read Matthew 21, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you at once, and you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Hi everyone, well let me have my welcome to that of Luke's before. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Lynn, I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide and I'm coming to the end of my five week series with you guys at Trinity Grove uh, on Matthew 19 through 21. Uh, it's been really wonderful being with you, I'm really sad of course that we can't be there in person but I look forward to seeing you again uh, shortly at some point in the future. Um, I'm filming this week uh, from my house, uh, which I figure is appropriate because that's where everyone is at the moment. Uh, waiting for the time when which we might gather together again. Uh, you should have had a chance to have downloaded the outline by now, I hope. Uh, it'll also pop up in the notes, but I'd encourage you to have it in front of you if you can, along with the Bible open. Um, and likewise, uh, if I can say this in a really polite way, it might be good just to switch off all your other devices um, and all your other apps, depending on how you're watching this, so that uh, together we can sit under the Word of God. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. This morning, as we sit under it, we pray that you might speak to us through it. Point us to your Son, unite us to him by your Spirit, and show us how we might conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of his gospel. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a very topical question today, one no doubt that all of us have been thinking about. Uh, the question is, uh, what kind of leader do we want? What kind of leader do we want? Uh, particularly in a time of crisis, uh, like the one that we're in. What kind of a leader do we want? What do we want them to be like? Not just in public, but behind the scenes as well. Well, some of the things I suppose we'd say, we want our leaders to be wise and sensible. Uh, we want them to be approachable and humble. We want them to be compassionate and empathetic. Wise and sensible, approachable and humble, compassionate and empathetic. We have a variety, a variety of preferences and expectations. What I want us to do today is see how people responded to Jesus and how they responded to him during the biggest crisis of their day. If you have a look on the handout, uh, you'll see there's three points, the disciples, uh, the crowd, then the whole city, and then some reflections on us today. Let's pick it up then with the disciples, verses 1 through 7, Matthew chapter 21. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. 
that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Okay, well, Jesus finally has made it to Jerusalem. I remember his three predictions about what would happen when he got there. Uh, one of which, the most recent, is printed there on your handout, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Jesus said when he got there, he would be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, he'd rise again. But remember also his explanation as to why, why he would go through all of this. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 28, again on your handout. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem, and given the importance of this visit, it's perhaps no surprise that Jesus had made extensive preparations for his entry. First impressions count, they say, and in Jesus' case, nothing is left to chance. What is surprising, however, is his choice of vehicle. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 indicates that he is to come into Jerusalem on a donkey with a colt. Now, of course, the question is, why is that significant? Why is that so important? Well, part of the reason is because your car says something about you. If I can put it that way, your car says something about you. Now, actually, I, I don't care for cars much, but there was once one day in my life where I cared about the car a lot. And so what I've done today is I've brought some photos. Now, we're a little bit low budget here still, so what I've done is I've actually literally printed out the photos, and I'm going to hold them up for you to see, um, mostly actually so that I can live out my fantasy of wanting to be a play school presenter. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like I'm on TV. Anyway, here we go. The photos, well, oh, a bit of background. Uh, it was my 21st wedding anniversary uh, this week, just on Friday. Uh, 21 years, when did I be married? Uh, we celebrated uh, by being locked indoors. So anyway, here we go. I'm going to show you a photo. If you have a look here, ah, oh, isn't that lovely? This is Wendy and me on our wedding day. Don't we look young? Anyway, the point of it is uh, you can't see the car so well there, although you can probably tell it's not a very modern car. In fact, this is another photo of the wedding car with uh, a couple of our friends, little kids standing on it. You can see there is our wedding car. I'm not actually sure what this car says about us. Uh, maybe it just says that we're old school romantic traditionalists. Anyway, why does Jesus choose a mere donkey and colt to carry him when he finally gets to Jerusalem? What's he saying? So why didn't Jesus choose a charger or a mighty war horse? a steed that befits a great king returning home after an epic military victory? Well, part of the answer, according to Matthew, comes in verses 4 and 5. See, Matthew verses four and five, 21, 4 and 5, Matthew quotes the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. The reference is there on your handout. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Here, the prophecy was of a king who would enter Jerusalem, and the prophecy itself had been made some 500 years BC. And that information will be important later. So one of the reasons why Jesus has chosen to ride in on a donkey, on a colt, is to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
but more than that, the type of ride this king has chosen does say something about him. You see, it says that he comes in peace, not with a raised fist in victory, but with arms open in friendship. It's a suggestion that this king might have a different agenda from what others in Jerusalem want of him. He has a different agenda because he's a different kind of king. Now, just for the record, the choice of a donkey or a colt, that doesn't mean that he's weak in any way. Consider, if you will, that a colt is most likely a broken and untamed horse, skittish with noisy crowds. But Jesus is fully in control. Well, in verses 6 and 7, the disciples do as Jesus directs. They spread their cloaks on the animals for Jesus to ride on, uh, I guess a sign of honour, kind of like getting out your best cushions for your grandparents if they've come around for a meal. Now let's see what kind of reception he receives when he reaches the city. Point two, the crowd. Pick it up in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Well, two things to notice about the crowd that's gathered. Firstly, it's a very large crowd, we're told. Not just a crowd, a very large one. Of course, to point out the obvious, uh, you might find that hard to imagine given social distancing at the moment. Uh, But actually, the important thing to notice is that this very large crowd's reaction is even more extreme than that of the disciples. You see, their cloaks are strewn on the road now. Branches are hacked down from the trees. And there are loud shouts of acclaim. And it's here that we get a hint that the crowd might have misunderstood what this king is like and what he has come to do. The hint lies in their greeting, in their salutation, which actually is quite over the top. Uh, It's a series of quotes there from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Again, the reference is on your handout. Two ways in which you see just how extraordinary, how effervescent their greeting is. Firstly, they call him Son of David. Son of David. Now that, of course, is a reference to David, the greatest king of Israel. And at this point, we're going back in time, not just 500 years to Zechariah, but a thousand years to when David sat on the throne. You see, the crowds don't see Zechariah's king gentle and riding on a donkey. The crowds are looking for something more. So they see someone more ride into Jerusalem. They see the son of David come home to the city of David. And at this point that their reaction really is quite over the top. Hosanna, they cry. Hosanna, twice for emphasis. Now, Hosanna just simply means save us. So, of course, the big question is, save us from what? What are they asking this son of David to save them from? Now, it's interesting, back in chapter 20, as we've seen, Jesus has just said he will give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, to save us from our sins. 
but instead the crowd sees someone who might save us from our enemies. The crowds see a king who will deliver them from their hated Roman overlords. That was the crisis of their day, and it had been going for years. Perhaps that's why the crowd will turn on him within one short week, once they realise that this Jesus really does have a different agenda from theirs. But at the moment, the tone feels highly triumphant. The cloaks and branches are more than just fussing around for the arrival of a VIP. This is serious excitement. There is expectation about the arrival of this king. Now to point out the obvious, many Australians, particularly those who are younger, they don't get this kind of royal fascination at the arrival of a monarch. So maybe a better parallel might be to imagine what the buzz would be like if you got word that a vaccine had arrived. But here's what we're at least meant to see from this episode. Jesus has been long expected. Jesus has been long expected. He's not some random upstart. He comes to fulfill something long anticipated. He's not just been on the road to Jerusalem for these last few months. This, this is the culmination of a plan that's run for a millennium, stretching right back to King David's time. And that means we ought be excited. Because the waiting is over at last. Well, the disciples, the crowd, thirdly and finally, the whole city. Pick it up in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, It's hardly a surprise that with this great crowd behind him, that the whole city was stirred, verse 10. And in fact, their question, who is this? That's actually the key to this whole story. Who is this king? What has he come to do? Will he deliver on his promises? Back to my earlier parallel. Can you begin to imagine the buzz? Can you imagine the meltdown on social media if there was a rumour that a truck laden with vaccine were coming up North Terrace? What is it? Does it work? Where do I have to go to get it? All of which means that the crowd's answer actually feels somewhat anticlimactic. It's a hint, actually, that they haven't really understood who Jesus is, despite their incredible greeting to this son of David. And you see that in two ways. Look how they respond in verse 11. When asked, who is this? The crowd's answer, verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, Two things to notice here. Firstly, a prophet. Um, Well, a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's a there's a kind of a, I guess a a rural denigration going on here. Bah humbug. This is someone from the sticks. How important is he actually going to be? But likewise, only a prophet. Only a prophet. 
And I think at this point we're meant to be reminded of another episode earlier in Matthew's Gospel, from chapter 16. I printed the passage there for you on your handout, because here almost the same question gets asked, who is this? But this is the first time in which Jesus' disciples have any understanding of what his mission is. Have a look with me there, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now the word Messiah, it just means Christ or God's anointed king. It's clearly a reference to the house of David. But Peter understands that Jesus is more than just the son of David. He is also son of the living God. Who is this? The city's question is one for us as well. How do you answer? What's your response? You see, whatever we think of Jesus, whoever we think he is, Matthew 21 has shown us who Jesus thinks he is. He is the king, the one foretold by Zechariah from the house of David. And his opinion of himself is unchanging. Well, that's the episode, shortened to the point. Let me try and draw this all together then, not just this talk, but this whole series, uh, with a few reflections for us today at point four. We've seen in these few chapters, Jesus finally make it to Jerusalem. Sure enough, within a week, he is, as predicted, mocked, flogged and crucified. Three days later, he does rise again. And his final instructions to his first disciples in Matthew 28, famously, make disciples of all nations. So here's where I want to include both today and for this series. What difference does that make for me in my week ahead? Are you ready? Well, here it is. Here's the big news for this week. Here's the big announcement, the presser you can't afford to miss. Actually, it's the same message as last week. It's a rerun, a repeat. It's not a message about lockdowns or recessions or vaccines or death counts. In fact, it's the message that one man has died and that one man has risen again. And so every single thing he predicted and everything he planned post-resurrection is going to come true. He's gone to all that effort already. Death and resurrection, nothing can thwart his plans now. Because God's plan to bring every knee to bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that plan of God's has not changed one bit from last week to this. Now, of course, I'm a realist. I get that it doesn't feel that way given the crisis engulfing our world. So perhaps here's how I can best explain it uh, with an illustration that, um, well, for those of you who know me well, you'll find particularly amusing. I think the best way to explain this is to say it's like running a triathlon. It's like running a triathlon. Now, for the record, I have never done one. Uh, If for no other reason uh, than the fact that, well, you know, I can run a little bit. I can manage to not fall off a bike, but I sink like a rock. So I'd never make it past the swim leg. Uh, Plus, I figure uh, I've never had the stamina to actually watch a triathlon. So I figure I probably shouldn't try to compete in one. Anywho, uh, my point is that if you're someone who's mad enough to enter a triathlon, then I reckon that whilst you're in the middle of it, it's pretty hard to see where it's all heading. So I want you to imagine instead that instead of being a competitor, rather you're up in the media blimp, up in the sky, looking down from a bird's eye view on the course as it's laid out before you. You can see all the competitors, they look like tiny little ants. You can see the whole procession from beginning to end. And you know that although there are many, many miles for each competitor to cover, eventually the finish line will be reached. So too with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. See, if you zoom out, if you zoom up and look down, you can see where he's come from and you can see where he's still going. Because his plan, his plan post-resurrection for disciples to be made of all nations, that has not changed one bit. Not even with coronavirus. Do you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 16 after Peter gave his answer to, uh, who is this man, who do you say that I am? Do you remember his confession? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Do you know what Jesus said next to Peter? I printed it for you on your hand out there. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so, for 2,000 years... Christians have taken Jesus at his word. He will build his church, and even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. For 2,000 years, Christians have taken Jesus at his word, and they have made every decision, big and small, with the utter conviction that what Jesus has already accomplished in his death and resurrection guarantees what will still take place, the making of disciples of all nations no matter how uncertain that end result might feel on any given day. For 2,000 years, Christians have taken Jesus at his word and they have persevered through every conceivable obstacle, from crossing 
cultural and language barriers to enduring persecution from the authorities. Christians have scaled mountains, forded rivers, crossed continents, and made disciples of all nations to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I, for one, thank God that someone did so before us. Otherwise, it never would have made it to us here. What I'm saying is that that mission hasn't changed, even if our church buildings have been closed for a season. I do know how painful it is to not be able to meet together as God's family. So I thought I'd tell you one more story, which I think parallels our situation today. It's a story again from history. It's about what happened when the Chinese government tried to stamp out the church post-World War II. Uh, this is a period uh, in which the Communist Party was the rule was was in power, and eventually it was to culminate in the Cultural Revolution that saw the massacre of up to two million opponents of the government. This is a story that's very personal to me because um, I've got one last thing to show you. This one here, I've got two pictures. Let me explain what they are. This one here, this is my great grandfather, my paternal great grandfather. Uh, he, as you can see, he was a minister, uh, but he died uh, during World War II. Over here is his wife, my great-grandmother. The reason I want to tell you about her is because uh, as the communists were closing the country, uh, my great-grandmother refused to leave China. Allegedly, this is part of our family history, our family folklore, the reason was... She refused to leave because she said, Chairman Mao is not bigger than God. Well, here's my point. When China was reopened, the West was surprised to discover that the number of Christians had actually grown throughout that time of persecution, throughout the time in which churches were closed to the point where best estimates are that there are something like 100 million Christians in China today. And do you know they did it without Zoom? And yet, why would we be surprised? Why would we be surprised? Didn't Jesus say, I will build my church and Chairman Mao will not overcome it? I want to say that if active persecution could not stop Christ's plan, neither will COVID-19. It's the same message this week as it was last week. It's just a different method of broadcasting. And you'll see at the bottom of your handout, uh, there'll be some time a little bit later for you um, for some discussion. How might you reach out to the unbelievers in your life in this week ahead? Because this is the news they need to hear. And because we're part of an enterprise to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Maybe it's reactively. I was talking last week with one of our students on campus, one of our second year students. She was telling me that um, one of her classmates, who's actually really quite worried about this whole scenario, had decided to stay home even before uni shut down. 
And the ESA, the, the Christian student, was saying to me that um, for a couple of years, uh, she's been telling this friend of hers that I'm going to ES today to the Bible talks, and she was never quite sure if her friend was paying any attention. Well, it turns out she was. Because in this week gone by, her friend got in touch with her and said, I need to find out about religion, because I need something to hope in. Maybe it's reactively, maybe it's proactively. How might you reach out to the unbelievers in your life in this week ahead? I've heard of some people who've been thinking about letterbox dropping, but a different kind of letterbox drop from in the past. Not to go and put advertisements about church service times in people's mailboxes, but rather just a letter to say, I get, you're probably like us, you're probably afraid. Would you like to talk someone to someone Here's my phone number. Give me a call anytime. I think this is particularly the case with Easter fast approaching. Over the weeks ahead, I think people are going to become increasingly bored with having to be locked up all the time. Maybe they might respond a little better to an invitation. Well, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to send you out to discussion. Uh, actually, no, I'm going to pray, and then if you've got time, perhaps you might um, have some discussion about the question at the bottom of your handout afterwards. How might you reach out to the unbelievers in your life in this week ahead? What situation might you respond to, and what initiative might you take? Let me pray. I pray these words of this great old Wesleyan hymn. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.